Part Five, Chapter Three, of An Outcast of the Islands by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Three. On Lingard's departure, solitude and silence closed round Willems, the cruel solitude of one abandoned by men, the reproachful silence which surrounds an outcast ejected by his kind the silence unbroken by the slightest whisper of hope an immense and impenetrable silence that swallows up without echo the murmur of regret and the cry of revolt the bitter peace of the abandoned clearings entered his heart in which nothing could live now but the memory and hate of his past not remorse in the breast of a man possessed by the masterful consciousness of his individuality with its desires and its rights by the immovable conviction of his own importance, of an importance so indisputable and final, that it clothes all wishes, endeavors, and mistakes with the dignity of unavoidable fate, there could be no place for such a feeling as that of remorse. The days passed. They passed unnoticed, unseen, in the wrapping blaze of glaring sunrises, in the short glow of tender sunsets, in the crushing oppression of high noons without a cloud. How many days? Two, three, or more? He did not know. To him, since Lingard had gone, the time seemed to roll on in profound darkness. All was night within him. All was gone from his sight. He walked about blindly in the deserted courtyards, amongst the empty houses that, perched high on their posts, looked down inimically on him, a white stranger, a man from other lands, seemed to look hostile and mute out of all memories of native life that lingered between their decaying walls. His wandering feet stumbled against the blackened brands of extinct fires, kicking up a light black dust of cold ashes that flew in drifting clouds, and settled to leeward on the fresh grass sprouting from the hard ground between the shade trees. He moved on and on, ceaseless unresting in widening circles, in zigzagging paths that led to no issue. He struggled on wearily with a set, distressed face behind which in his tired brain seethed his thoughts, restless, somber, tangled, chilling, horrible, and venomous, like a nestful of snakes. From afar the bleared eyes of the old serving-woman, the somber gaze of Isa, followed the gaunt and tottering figure in its unceasing prowl along the fences, between the houses, amongst the wild luxuriance of riverside thickets. Those three human beings, abandoned by all, were like shipwrecked people left on an insecure and slippery ledge by the retiring tide of an angry sea, listening to its distant roar, living anguished between the menace of its return and the hopeless horrors of their solitude in the midst of a tempest of passion, of regret, of disgust, of despair. The breath of the storm had cast two of them there, robbed of everything, even of resignation. The third, the decrepit witness of their struggle and their torture, accepted her own dull conception of facts, of strength and youth gone, of her useless old age, of her last servitude, of being thrown away by her chief, by her nearest, to use up the last and worthless remnant of flickering life between those two incomprehensible and sombre outcasts, a shriveled, an unmoved, 
a passive companion of their disaster. To the river Willems turned his eyes like a captive that looks fixedly at the door of his cell. If there was any hope in the world, it would come from the river, by the river. For hours together he would stand in sunlight while the sea-breeze sweeping over the lonely reach fluttered his ragged garments, the keen salt-breeze that made him shiver now and then under the flood of intense heat. He looked at the brown and sparkling solitude of the flowing water, of the water flowing ceaseless and free in a soft, cool murmur of ripples at his feet. The world seemed to end there. The forest of the other bank appeared unattainable, enigmatical, forever beyond reach like the stars of heaven, and as indifferent. Above and below the forest on his side of the river came down to the river in a surried multitude of tall immense trees towering in a great spread of twisted boughs above the thick undergrowth, great solid trees looking sombre, severe, and malevolently stolid like a giant crowd of pitiless enemies pressing round silently to witness his slow agony. He was alone, small, crushed. He thought of escape, of something to be done. What, a raft? He imagined himself working at it feverishly, desperately, cutting down trees, fastening the logs together, and then drifting down with the current down to the sea into the straits. There were ships there, ships, help, white men, men like himself, good men who would rescue him, take him away, take him far away where there was trade and houses and other men that could understand him exactly, appreciate his capabilities, where there was proper food and money, where there were beds, knives, forts, carriages, brass bands, cool drinks, churches with well-dressed people praying in them. He would pray also. The superior land of refined delights, where he could sit on a chair, eat his tiffin off a white tablecloth, nod to fellows, good fellows. He would be popular, always was, where he could be virtuous, correct, do business, draw a salary, smoke cigars, buy things in shops, have boots, be happy, free, become rich. Oh, God, what was wanted? Cut down a few trees? No, one would do. They used to make canoes by burning out a tree trunk, he had heard. Yes, one would do. One tree to cut down. He rushed forward and suddenly stood still, as if rooted in the ground. He had a pocket-knife. And he would throw himself down on the ground by the riverside. He was tired, exhausted, as if that raft had been made, the voyage accomplished, the fortune attained. A glaze came over his staring eyes, over his eyes that gazed hopelessly at the rising river, where big logs and uprooted trees drifted in the shine of midstream a long procession of black and ragged specks. He could swim out and drift away on one of those trees. Anything to escape, anything, any risk. He could fasten himself up between the dead branches. He was torn by desire, by fear. His heart was wrung by the faltering of his courage. He turned over, face downward, his head on his arms. He had a terrible vision of shadowless horizons, where the blue sky and the blue sea met, or a circular and blazing emptiness where a dead tree and a dead man drifted together, endlessly, up and down upon the brilliant undulations of the straits. No ships there, only death, and the river led to it. He sat up with a profound groan. 
yes death why should he die no better solitude better hopeless waiting alone alone no he was not alone he saw death looking at him from everywhere from the bushes from the clouds he heard her speaking to him in the murmur of the river filling the space touching his heart his brain with a cold hand he could see and think of nothing else he saw it the sure death everywhere he saw it so close that he was always on the point of throwing out his arms to keep it off it poisoned all he saw all he did the miserable food he ate the muddy water he drank it gave a frightful aspect to sunrises and sunsets to the brightness of hot noon to the cooling shadows of the evenings he saw the horrible form among the big trees in the network of creepers in the fantastic outlines of leaves of the great indented leaves that seemed to be so many enormous hands with big broad palms with stiff fingers outspread to lay hold of him hands gently stirring or hands arrested in a frightful immobility with a stillness attentive and watching for the opportunity to take him to enlace him to strangle him to hold him till he died hands that would hold him dead that would never let go that would cling to his body forever till it perished disappeared into frantic and tenacious grasp and yet the world was full of life all the things all the men he knew existed moved breathed and he saw them in a long perspective far off diminished distinct desirable unattainable precious lost forever round him ceaselessly there went on without a sound the mad turmoil of tropical life after he had died all this would remain he wanted to clasp to embrace solid things he had an immense craving for sensations for touching pressing seeing handling holding on to all these things all this would remain remain for years for ages forever after he had miserably died there all this would remain would live would exist in joyous sunlight would breathe in the coolness of serene nights what for then he would be dead he would be stretched upon the warm moisture of the ground feeling nothing seeing nothing knowing nothing he would lie stiff passive rotting slowly while over him under him through him unopposed busy hurried the endless and minute throngs of insects little shining monsters of repulsive shapes with horns with claws with pincers would swarm in streams and rushes in eager struggle for his body would swarm countless persistent ferocious and greedy till there would remain nothing but the white gleam of bleaching bones in the long grass in the long grass that would shoot its feathery heads between the bare and polished ribs there would be that only left of him nobody would miss him no one would remember him nonsense it could not be there were ways out of this somebody would turn up some human beings would come he would speak entreat use force to extort help from them he felt strong he was very strong he would the discouragement the conviction of the futility of his hopes would return in an acute sensation of pain in his heart he would begin again his aimless wanderings he tramped till he was ready to drop without being able to calm by bodily fatigue the trouble of his soul there was no rest no peace within the cleared grounds of his prison there was no relief 
but in the black release of sleep, of sleep without memory and without dreams, in the sleep coming brutal and heavy, like the lead that kills. To forget in annihilating sleep, to tumble headlong as if stunned out of daylight into the night of oblivion, was for him the only, the rare respite from this existence which he lacked the courage to endure or to end. He lived, he struggled with the inarticulate delirium of his thoughts under the eyes of the silent Isa. She shared his torment in the poignant wonder, in the acute longing, in the despairing inability to understand the cause of his anger and of his repulsion, the hate of his looks, the mystery of his silence, the menace of his rare words, of those words in the speech of white people that were thrown at her with rage, with contempt, with the evident desire to hurt her, to hurt her who had given herself, her life, all she had to give, to that white man, to hurt her who had wanted to show him the way to true greatness, who had tried to help him in her woman's dream of everlasting, enduring, unchangeable affection. From the short contact with the whites in the crashing collapses of her old life, there remained with her the imposing idea of irresistible power and of ruthless strength she had found a man of their race, and with all their qualities. All whites are alike. But this man's heart was full of anger against his own people, full of anger existing there by the side of his desire of her. And to her it had been an intoxication of hope, for great things born in the proud and tender consciousness of her influence. She had heard the passing whisper of wonder and fear in the presence of his hesitation, of his resistance, of his compromises, and yet with a woman's belief in the durable steadfastness of hearts, in the irresistible charm of her own personality, she had pushed him forward, trusting the future, blindly, hopefully, sure to attain by his side the ardent desire of her life, if she could only push him far beyond the possibility of retreat. She did not know and could not conceive anything of his so exalted ideals. She thought the man a warrior and a chief, ready for battle, violence, and treachery to his own people, for her. What more natural? Was he not a great, strong man? Those two, surrounded each by the impenetrable wall of their aspirations, were hopelessly alone, out of sight, out of earshot of each other, each the center of dissimilar and distant horizons, standing each on a different earth, under a different sky. She remembered his words, his eyes, his trembling lips, his outstretched hands. She remembered the great, the immeasurable sweetness of her surrender, that beginning of her power which was to last until death. He remembered the quaysides and the warehouses, the excitement of a life in a whirl of silver coins, the glorious uncertainty of a money hunt, his numerous successes, the lost possibilities of wealth and consequent glory. She, a woman, was the victim of her heart, of her woman's belief that there is nothing in the world but love, the everlasting thing. He was the victim of his strange principles, of his countenance, of his blind belief in himself, of his solemn veneration for the voice of his boundless ignorance. In a moment of his idleness, of suspense, of discouragement, she had come that creature, and by the touch of her hand, had destroyed his future, his dignity of a clever and civilized man. 
had awakened in his breast the infamous thing which had driven him to what he had done, and to end miserably in the wilderness and be forgotten, or else remembered with hate or contempt. He dared not look at her, because now whenever he looked at her his thought seemed to touch crime like an outstretched hand. She could only look at him and at nothing else. What else was there? She followed him with a timorous gaze, with a gaze forever expecting, patient, and entreating. And in her eyes there was the wonder and desolation of an animal that knows only suffering, of the incomplete soul that knows pain but knows not hope, that can find no refuge from the facts of life in the illusory conviction of its dignity, of an exalted destiny beyond, in the heavenly consolation of a belief in the momentous origin of its hate. For the first three days after Lingard went away, he would not even speak to her. She preferred his silence to the sound of hated and incomprehensible words he had been lately addressing to her with a wild violence of manner, passing at once into complete apathy. And during these three days he hardly ever left the river, as if on that muddy bank he had felt himself nearer to his freedom. He would stay late, he would stay till sunset. He would look at the glow of gold passing away amongst somber clouds in a bright red flush like a splash of warm blood. It seemed to him ominous and ghastly, with a foreboding of violent death that beckoned him from everywhere, even from the sky. One evening he remained by the riverside long after sunset, regardless of the night mist that had closed round him, had wrapped him up and clung to him like a wet winding sheet. A slight shiver recalled him to his senses, and he walked up the courtyard towards his house. Isa rose from before the fire that glimmered red through its own smoke, which hung thickening under the boughs of the big tree. She approached him from the side as he neared the plankway of the house. He saw her stop to let him begin his ascent. In the darkness her figure was like the shadow of a woman with clasped hands put out beseechingly. He stopped, could not help glancing at her. In all the somber gracefulness of the straight figure, her limbs, features, all was indistinct and vague, but the gleam of her eyes in the faint starlight. He turned his head away and moved on. He could feel her footsteps behind him on the bending planks, but he walked up without turning his head. He knew what she wanted. She wanted to come in there. He shuddered at the thought of what might happen in the impenetrable darkness of that house if they were to find themselves alone, even for a moment. He stopped in the doorway and heard her say, "'Let me come in. Why this anger? Why this silence? Let me watch by your side. Have I not watched faithfully? Did harm ever come to you when you closed your eyes while I was by? I have waited. I have waited for your smile, for your words. I can wait no more. Look at me. Speak to me.' Is there a bad spirit in you, a bad spirit that has eaten up your courage and your love? Let me touch you, forget all, all, forget the wicked hearts, the angry faces, and remember only the day I came to you, to you, O oh my heart, O oh my life. The pleading sadness of her appeal filled the space with the tremor of her low tones that carried tenderness and tears into the great peace of the sleeping world. All around them the forest, the clearings, the river, covered by the silent veil of night, seemed to wake up and listen to her words in attentive stillness. 
after the sound of her voice had died out in a stifled sigh, they appeared to listen yet, and nothing stirred among the shapeless shadows but the innumerable fireflies that twinkled in clinging clusters, in gliding pairs, in wandering and solitary points, like the glimmering drift of scattered stardust. Willems turned round slowly, reluctantly, as if compelled by main force. Her face was hidden in her hands, and he looked above her bent head into the sombre brilliance of the night. It was one of those nights that give the impression of extreme vastness, when the sky seems higher, when the passing puffs of tepid breeze seem to bring with them faint whispers from beyond the stars. The air was full of sweet scent, of the scent charming, penetrating, and violent like the impulse of love. He looked into that great dark place odorous with the breath of life, with the mystery of existence, renewed, fecund, indestructible, and he felt afraid of his solitude, of the solitude of his body, of the loneliness of his soul in the presence of this unconscious and ardent struggle, of this lofty indifference, of this merciless and mysterious purpose perpetuating strife and death through the march of ages. For the second time in his life he felt, in a sudden sense of his significance, the need to send a cry for help into the wilderness, and for the second time he realized the hopelessness of its unconcern. He could shout for help on every side, and nobody would answer. He could stretch out his hands, he could call for aid, for support, for sympathy, for relief, and nobody would come. Nobody. There was no one there but that woman. His heart was moved, softened with pity at his own abandonment, his anger against her, against her who was the cause of all his misfortunes, vanished before his extreme need for some kind of consolation. Perhaps, if he must resign himself to his fate, she might help him to forget. To forget. For a moment, in an access of despair so profound that it seemed like the beginning of peace, he planned the deliberate descent from his pedestal, the throwing away of his superiority, of all his hopes, of old ambitions, of the ungrateful civilization. For a moment forgetfulness in her arms seemed possible, and lured by that possibility the semblance of renewed desire possessed his breast in a burst of reckless contempt for everything outside himself, in a savage disdain of earth and of heaven. He said to himself that he would not repent. The punishment for his only sin was too heavy. There was no mercy under heaven. He did not want any. He thought desperately that if he could find with her again the madness of the past, the strange delirium that had changed him, that it worked his undoing, he would be ready to pay for it with an eternity of perdition. He was intoxicated by the subtle perfumes of the night. He was carried away by the suggestive stir of the warm breeze. He was possessed by the exultation of the solitude, of the silence, of his memories, in the presence of that figure offering herself in a submissive and patient devotion, coming to him in the name of the past, in the name of those days when he could see nothing, think of nothing, desire nothing, but her embrace. He took her suddenly in his arms, and she clasped her hands round his neck with a low cry of joy and surprise. He took her in his arms and waited for the transport, for the madness, for the sensations remembered and lost, and while she sobbed gently on his breast he held her and felt cold, sick, tired, exasperated with his failure, 
and ended by cursing himself. She clung to him trembling with the intensity of her happiness and her love. He heard her whispering, her face hidden on his shoulder, of past sorrow, of coming joy that would last forever, of her unshaken belief in his love. She had always believed, always. Even while his face was turned away from her in the dark days, while his mind was wandering in his own land, amongst his own people. But it would never wander away from her any more. Now it had come back. He would forget the cold faces and the hard hearts of the cruel people. What was there to remember? Nothing? Was it not so? He listened hopelessly to the faint murmur. He stood still and rigid, pressing her mechanically to his breast while he thought that there was nothing for him in the world. He was robbed of everything robbed of his passion, of his liberty, of forgetfulness, of consolation. She, wild with delight, whispered on rapidly of love, of light, of peace, of long years. He looked drearily above her head, down into the deeper gloom of the courtyard. And all at once it seemed to him that he was peering into a somber hollow, into a deep black hole full of decay and of whitened bones into an immense and inevitable grave full of corruption where sooner or later he must unavoidably fall. In the morning he came out early and stood for a time in the doorway, listening to the light breathing behind him in the house. She slept. He had not closed his eyes through all that night. He stood swaying, then leaned against the lintel of the door. He was exhausted, done up, fancied himself hardly alive. He had a disgusted horror of himself that, as he looked at the level sea of mist at his feet, faded quickly into a dull indifference. It was like a sudden and final decrepitude of his senses, of his body, of his thoughts. Standing on the high platform, he looked over the expanse of low night fog above which, here and there, stood out the feathery heads of tall bamboo clumps and the round tops of single trees resembling small islets emerging black and solid from a ghostly and impalpable sea. Upon the faintly luminous background of the eastern sky, the somber line of the great forest bounded that smooth sea of white vapors with an appearance of a fantastic and unattainable shore. He looked without seeing anything, thinking of himself. Before his eyes the light of the rising sun burst above the forest with the suddenness of an explosion. He saw nothing. Then, after a time, he murmured with conviction, speaking half aloud to himself in the shock of the penetrating thought. I am a lost man. He shook his hand above his head in a gesture careless and tragic, then walked down into the mist that closed above him in shining undulations under the first breath of the morning breeze. End of chapter 3 Recording by Tom Weiss Tom's audiobooks dot com